Hi, everyone. This is Podcast for Patients with AAMDSIF, and I'm Alice Houck, Senior Director of Professional Programs at the Foundation. Our podcast series is brought to you thanks to generous support from patients, families, and caregivers like you, and a grant from Celgene. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the series. Today, we're talking with Dr. Vu Duong, an associate professor at the University of Maryland and Greenbaum Comprehensive Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. We'll be talking with Dr. Duong about MDS risk levels and the important role that those play in determining treatment options and prognosis. Good, good morning, Dr. Duong. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Alice, and thank you so much for having me. First of all, can you explain to us how MDS risk levels are determined and why they're so important to uh, evaluating MDS and the course of treatment that physicians take in consultation with patients? Sure. So after establishing a diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndrome, accurate risk assessment is the most important step in the proper management of the disease. Um, MDS is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning there's tremendous variability in how patients fare. Patients with lower risk disease can do well for quite some time, and life expectancy is oftentimes measured in years and years. The goals of care for that population, therefore, generally is to decrease transfusion burden, decrease symptoms, and improve overall quality of life. As of yet, we don't have any therapies that have definitively shown to prolong survival in the patients with lower risk disease. On the other hand, patients with higher risk disease are much more likely to progress to acute myeloid leukemia or unfortunately to come, succumb to the complications of MDS itself. These patients, if left untreated, their survival is quite short. On average, is somewhere, depending on the risk level, about 18 months or less. The intent of our therapies in these patients, therefore, really is to alter the natural history of the disease, prevent this progression to acute leukemia, and of course, to extend their overall survival. So not only does risk stratification inform us about the patient's prognosis, it really also guides our decisions regarding which therapies are the most appropriate. So over the years, a number of risk scores have been developed, including the original International Prognostic Scoring System, uh, otherwise known as the IPSS, the revised IPSS. There's a WHO-based prognostic score and uh, this global MD Anderson risk score as well, just to name a few. All of them have their strengths and weaknesses, but most are based on the same three factors. Um, so the first is the karyotype, otherwise known as cytogenetics. So these are the changes in the chromosomes, um, which uh, is how your uh, DNA and genetic material is packaged. Um, the second factor is the percentage of bone marrow blasts. These are the really immature and often malignant cells in the bone marrow. And the last factor is the number and the depth of the cytopenias, otherwise known as kind of the low blood counts. When we draw blood counts from a patient, we look at neutrophils, which is a subset of the white blood cells, the hemoglobin, a measure of the red blood cells, and the platelets, which help blood clot. So among these three cell lines, how many are low and how low are they? That's, that's really the third factor. What is the IPSSR and how is it used by the physician and uh, how is the, the patient to understand its role in determining their course of treatment? Okay, so um, before I get to the revised IPSS, let me go back a little bit and talk about the original international prognostic scoring system. 
So uh, just so you get a little bit of a history of how this all developed. So that was the original IPSS was first published in 1997. And the data were, de were derived from more than 800 patients with primary or de novo MDS who essentially received supportive care alone. Um, there were three disease-related characteristics that were most important, and they were the ones that we just talked about, the bone marrow blast, the karyotype, and the number of cytopenias. You get a point value for each of these three characteristics, and after adding up the points, the patients can div be divided into four risk groups, low, intermediate one, intermediate two, and high risk. This scoring system is and was relatively easy to use and was widely adopted, but it was clear that it had some limitations. Um, it, it accounted for a relatively small number of karyotype abnormalities. Again, that's the changes in the chromosomes. Um, and we now know that that's extremely important in determining prognosis. It also only accounts for the number of blood cell lines that are low, not how severe the decreases are. Um, so recognizing some of these limitations, the revised international prognostic scoring system was published in 2012, um, and this addressed some of these limitations. So this risk score was developed from data on over 7,000 patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, and therefore is a much more refined model. Uh, due to the much larger number of patients, the score accounts for a higher number of the cytogenetic abnormalities. Um, and which, as I said before, is now very, we know is very, very important in determining prognosis. And it also accounts for the level of neutrophils, hemoglobin, and platelets. Uh, there's also, by the way, an adjustment for age um, that, that can be used as well. So using this system, again, assigning a point value for each of the variables that are involved, patients are separated into five risk groups based on, the, on their scores. So very low, low, intermediate, high, and very high. In this system, uh, what they found is that the average survival ranges from nearly nine years for patients with very low risk disease to about nine to 10 months for patients with very high risk disease. And all of that is, of course, if they are not treated. Um, in general, patients with very low and low risk disease can simply be observed with periodic blood work or can be treated with agents that stimulate blood production, such as epoetin, uh, immunosuppressive therapy, and in a certain subset of patients with a deletion and a portion of chromosome 5, an oral drug known as lenalidomide. Uh, the exact therapy, of course, depends on the situation and the, and the patient. In contrast, patients with high and very high-risk disease, treatment usually uh, consists of one of the so-called hypomethylating agents, azacitidine or, or decitabine, which are a form of chemotherapy. And for any risk group, of course, um, the uh, possibility of a clinical trial is also very reasonable. For these patients with higher risk disease, um, if they are otherwise healthy and relatively young, they should also be considered for allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, which is our most aggressive therapy for blood cancers and offers the potential for cure. Treatment for patients in the intermediate group, so the group right in that middle, um, is very individualized. The revised IPSS has really now taken over as the most widely used prognostic scoring system. Um, at the same time, it's also a little bit more cumbersome to use because it's more refined and there's uh, kind of more point values and more categories to look at. Um, but there are various online calculators and charts that can be used to make it easier. Um, and I would say that also these days, most clinical trials in MDS use this score to determine eligibility as well. And can you tell us, is, is the IPSSR valid after treatment has been started? 
Oh, that's a good question that uh, I get all the time. So the IPS, IPSSR was originally intended only to be used at presentation and not at multiple time points during the patient's disease course. That is, so the original study excluded patients whose disease had been previously treated with disease-altering therapy. That being said, after the IPSSR uh, was published in 2012, a number of research groups have validated it in different settings, including at various time points in treatment. So yes, you can use this score even after patients have had treatment, although I don't think the median survival times will be entirely accurate. I also think that one has to be very cautious about relying on it to guide decision-making at certain time points. So take, for example, a patient with very high-risk disease initially who receives treatment with azacitidine, resulting in normalization of the karyotype, bone marrow blasts, and blood counts. Obviously, if you calculate the IPSSR at that point when the patient's doing really well, the blood counts are great, and 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 everything has has improved, then you apply that score and you'll say, oh, well, now the patient has very low risk disease. And at that point, it obviously doesn't make sense to say, okay, well, now that they're doing well, then they don't need to continue azacitidine or they don't need to proceed to allogeneic stem cell transplantation. What if a patient has no blasts but lots of mutations? Can a patient be high risk without blasts, for example? Yes. So as we discussed previously, blast count is only one of the characteristics that's examined in risk scoring, both in the revised IPSS and original IPSS and even the other uh, the prognostic scores as well. So even if a patient has no increased blasts, if the karyotype is particularly poor risk and or the number and depth of the cytopenias is severe, these patients can still have higher risk disease. I think that because blast can be quantified and because we set a somewhat arbitrary cutoff of 20% as defining progression to acute myeloid leukemia, I think it's easy to kind of lose sight of other important disease characteristics. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why these scoring systems are valuable to put everything else into context as well. Um, what we know, as I had mentioned before, is in fact, karyotype actually has more of an impact on the prognosis of a patient than the bone marrow blast percentage. This is actually reflected in the revised IPSS. So patients with the worst karyotypes the, in the very poor risk for karyotype get assigned four points, whereas the highest value for blast, meaning more than 10% bone marrow blast, only gets assigned three points. And so that can, can go to show you that the karyotype is probably even more important than the, than the percentage of blasts. Lastly, although not incorporated into the IPSSR, certain molecular mutations such as TP53, um, so this is a mutation in the kind of quintessential tumor suppressor gene, um, a mutation there has a really, really tremendous impact on prognosis negatively, unfortunately. And what's the cutoff between watch and wait at a lower risk level and some moderate treatment? Okay. So certainly if patients have high or very high risk disease, treatment should be initiated quickly, again, likely with uh, either azacitidine or decidamine or, or chemotherapies. For patients in the very low, low, and sometimes intermediate risk group, it often comes down to whether patients have significant symptoms from their low blood counts and whether transfusions are needed. For example, the most frequent problem uh, patients face with MDS is anemia, which can lead to fatigue and shortness of breath. 
But the hemoglobin level at which patients start having symptoms can vary somewhat. So one patient may feel perfectly fine at a certain level, and yet the next patient is really struggling at the same hemoglobin level, and that person would need treatment to to try to stimulate more red blood cell production um, and to improve their symptoms. Do all oncologists, hematologists know how to use the IPSSR, and should patients ask them about it once they receive a diagnosis of MDS? The IPSSR is very widely used, certainly here in the United States. So I think all oncologists and hematologists who treat MDS here should be familiar with it. That being said, there are some a few other risk scores that I mentioned before that have been validated. So some physicians may have a preference for using one score over another. I agree that patients should ask their physicians about the score. Even if you don't know the exact number, I think patients should know at the very least whether they have lower or higher risk disease. At times, however, the the IPSSR has to be interpreted with caution We already mentioned previously the situation of using it to risk stratify patients who have been treated. Um, Patients with therapy-related MDS, so patients who received prior chemotherapy or radiation therapy, also were excluded from the revised IPSS as it was originally developed. So while some research groups have shown that the revised IPSS can still discriminate between patients who will fare better or worse in a relative sense, the overall survival of patients with therapy-related MDS is generally worse than patients with de novo MDS. So again, while the risk model can still technically be used, the median survivals that were published will not be accurate. There are also many other factors that have been shown to influence survival and not reflected in the revised IPSS. We talked briefly about molecular mutations previously, and testing for these panels of mutations has really become the standard of care over the last several years, Um, but this was all done well after the revised IPSS was published. Several research groups have tried to build new models to incorporate these mutational data, but it's been difficult and none have really gained wide acceptance. Um, I should mention that there have been other prognostic features such as the ferritin, which is a measure of the iron stores, albumin, which is a, a one of the blood proteins, um, the need for transfusions, um, there's uh, the level of uh, eosinophils, which are another blood component. So there's lots of other uh, factors that can also influence prognosis um, that I think that should be taken into account as well, not just the revised IPSS. Um, Again, that being said, I do think that it is a very important score and is at least a starting point. Um, And really, I think that physicians here should be familiar with it and be able to apply it. Um, And I think that patients should at least have a general idea of their risk level. Thank you. It's important that, that patients understand the tools that the physicians are using but understand that the, the, the IPSSR is one of several tools, and especially with this era of personalized medicine and, and very uh, individualized care, it, as you mentioned, it, it, it's one of several tools used, and there are other tests and other measures and considerations that come into play when treatment decisions are being made in consultation with the patients. But I would assume you concur that at any time patients should inquire with their physician or any or others on their healthcare team if they're unclear about what some of these numbers and risk level uh, interpretations mean for them. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would add uh, for patients about understanding their MDS risk level? 
Um, I, I don't think so. I, I think that we've covered the major topics here. And um, I, I think, again, the take home points, um, just as you said, is I think that knowing your risk score and understanding your risk and how that why that's important and how that influences your treatment, I, I think is really the big take home point here. Thank you, Dr. Duong, for your helpful answers today and explanation of a, a very complex uh, tool that is used by physicians to help determine treatment for patients and understand the, the uh, risk level of MDS. I should add that there is more information on the AAMDSIF website at www.aamds.org with uh, pictures of these risk stratification tools that are used and a, a more detailed explanation if you're interested in looking at that. And uh, there are, uh, there's other information, of course, about how risk level is used to determine the course of treatment with MDS patients. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. You can find out more about bone marrow failure disease on our website at www.aamds.org or following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or, of course, give us a call at 800-747-2820. Thank you for joining us.